Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. I'm Kathy with a C. And I'm Kathy with a K. And this is season two of Killer Destinations. Today's destination is Portland, Oregon. Known as the City of Roses, the city was formed in 1845 and its name resulted from a coin toss between two of the city's founders. Asa Lovejoy and Francis Pettigrove could not agree on how to name the land they had recently acquired, so they decided to flip a coin. Whoever won would get to name the place after their hometown. Pettigrove, a native of Portland, Maine, won the toss and the future Oregon capital was named. Had Lovejoy won, the city would have been called Boston. Early growth was stimulated by a number of gold rushes, as well as the flow of immigrants along the Oregon Trail, which was a wagon road stretching 2,170 miles from Missouri to Oregon's Willamette Valley. The Oregon Trail was not a road in any modern sense, only parallel ruts leading across endless prairie, sagebrush desert, and mountains. From the 1840s through the 1880s, thousands trekked westward, carrying only a few belongings and supplies for the journey and settling on the western frontier, forever changing the American West. Currently, Portland prides itself on its eclectic beer and food scene and is ranked as one of the country's best cities for foodies. But in 2018, the shocking murder of the lead chef and instructor at the Oregon Culinary Institute left detectives with a whodunit worthy of a suspense novel. On Saturday, June 2nd, 2018, Daniel Brophy arrived for work at his usual time, about 7.20 a.m., at the Oregon Culinary Institute. He was the first to work, so he disarmed the alarm for the building and went into one of the school's kitchens to prepare for his day. Dorothy Damon, who was also an instructor at the Institute, arrived a few minutes after Daniel and went to her office to begin her day. Katie Dooley, a student at the school, arrived for classes just after 8 a.m. Classes started at 8.30, so the students typically got there a little early to get dressed for class. Kath, they had a uniform, as you would imagine, of black pants, a chef jacket, and a chef hat that they all had to wear during their classes. Katie was in the baking and pastry program at the school and only took classes there on the weekends. When Katie arrived that morning, there were multiple students in the parking lot waiting at the student entrance door because it was locked. And this was really unusual for it to be locked. And especially that day, because they were all about to do their final exams and everybody was nervous. They wanted to prepare. They wanted to get there extra early and none of them could get in. Once Katie got there, they only had to wait a few minutes before one of the other instructors, Chef Damon, came from inside the school to open the doors for them. The students all went into the lounge that was right next to the entrance and chatted with each other for a few minutes as they were getting ready. Now, just a few minutes later, Katie heard another student, Clorinda Perez, yell for someone to call 911. Now, Katie ran down the hallway to Kitchen One, which is where she heard Clorinda yelling, to ask if she was serious, and Clorinda said yes. So as Katie called 911, she saw Clorinda performing CPR on someone lying on the ground. And when she looked closer, she saw that it was chef instructor Daniel Brophy, who went by Dan. Now, while on the phone, she ran to get Chef Damon. This was the other instructor there who opened the doors for them. And the two returned to the kitchen as Katie was telling the dispatcher that Dan was unconscious and not breathing. Now, Kath, the thing about Clorinda Perez, this was the student who was doing CPR. Mm -hmm. The Saturday class, these were only for weekend classes. The kids who were there, they only took weekend classes and they all had full-time jobs the rest of the week. Clorinda's full-time job was as a medical assistant. Mm. And so that's why she was there doing the CPR. But when Katie got back and Clorinda had been doing chest compressions for several minutes now, she started freaking out a little bit because blood started coming out of Dan's chest. And it hadn't been there before. So Clorinda was scared that she had cracked a rib or even broken one. And it was now an open wound. But she kept continuing CPR because she knew as a medical assistant, you don't stop the CPR, even if you're concerned with a broken rib. OK, wow. Something for everyone to know. Good to know. Exactly. 
When the paramedics arrived, though, they determined that Dan Brophy was deceased and the blood was from at least one gunshot wound to the chest. Paramedics requested that the Portland Police Bureau respond and homicide detectives were dispatched to begin an investigation. Based on the evidence at the scene, it appeared that Dan Brophy was having a routine morning setting up for his class and he was likely standing at a sink filling water and ice buckets when he was shot. According to the medical examiner, Dan was shot twice, which corresponded with the two shell casings found at the scene. He was shot first in the back, penetrating his spine and piercing his heart. Although the first shot likely paralyzed him and rendered him immobile, the perpetrator then walked over to him as he laid on the floor and shot him again at close range, piercing the heart and ensuring death. Nothing at the Oregon Culinary Institute appeared to be disturbed, and there were no signs that there had been a struggle. Dan was also found to be in possession of a pocket knife that was still clipped to his pants pocket and did not appear as if he tried to access it for any defensive reasons. Dan was also found with over $70 cash in his wallet, as well as his glasses, keys, cell phone, ID, credit cards, etc. His pickup truck was also parked just outside the door of the Culinary Institute. So detectives determined that robbery did not appear to be the motive for this homicide. While at the scene, detectives met with his wife, Nancy Brophy, who drove to the Culinary Institute after a friend called her about the incident at the school and it was on the news. Before she arrived, Nancy tried to call Dan but was unable to get a hold of him. So she told detectives that she had a horrible feeling something happened to her husband and just drove to the school. Detectives then informed her of her husband's death. In 1991, 41-year-old Nancy decided to get a fresh start and left Texas for Portland, Oregon. She was born and raised in Texas and went to college at the University of Houston and married and divorced her first husband. With no children tying her to Texas, she decided to leave the state. Now in Oregon, she enrolled at what the time was called the Western Culinary Institute. It's now known as Le Cordon Bleu College. Oh, of oh look Col- at you, fancy girl. Oh, you <laughs> German go. and French. Mm-hmm. Look oui, at that. Wee oui, wee. Oui. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was there that she met 37-year-old Daniel Brophy. He was in his first term teaching at the Institute, and she met him during her first class as a student there. Three years later, in 1994, Dan divorced his wife, with whom he had one son. At some point, Nancy and Dan began dating, and she told friends that she was first struck by his intelligence, and then he wooed her with his gastronomic prowess. What a cool skill, honestly, knowing how to... Whip up something fancy in the kitchen. Exactly. But you do. Little known fact about Kathy is that we love for her to cook when we go on vacations. And just in general, we love being invited to her house. She is a whiz and you have the most highly developed palate of anybody I know. Okay, that is way, way, way too nice a compliment. I but I appreciate I know. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but you do. Like, she'll taste something and she'll be like, oh, I taste the undertone of. No. no she doesn't talk <laughs> like that. But she totally does. To be fair, when my kids were little and when my husband was working nights, I was awful. I was a terrible cook. And I'd be like, okay, uh, let's see, a round meal. Okay, bowl of cereal and some green beans. <laughs> Like they ate the most random things. It was terrible. macaroni and cheese. Yeah, I improved slowly over time. She improved amazingly over time. (laughs) One of these days, we'll have her whip something up for all of us. (laughs) Exactly. My specialty is actually chicken melonese, and I also make a mean pulled pork. After graduating from the Culinary Institute, Nancy joined a writer's group. Now, her first published work was a pamphlet for the University of Houston that dealt with changing mores of sexuality in the 60s and 70s. Kath, why don't you tell everybody what the title was? Because you didn't write it down because you didn't like it. It was entitled Between Your Navel and Your Knees. (laughs) She's missing some serious erogenous zones in that pamphlet. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. But let's have a chat about your dad's sex talk with you while we're talking about this. Oh, I'm sure the navel to the knees was way more detailed than my dad's sex talk. Way more. I think we talked about that before. It was one sentence. It was, if you're with a boy and he doesn't understand the meaning of the word no, show him with your fists. <laughs> like, that was my dad. Hey, it's everything you yeah, need to do to exactly. deal with it. Do you understand? Yes, I understand. Okay, good. Then we're good. And I was like, oh my God, that was a sex talk. I know. <laughs> 
and way better than it could have been. Exactly. Nancy also wrote nonfiction articles published in trade journals and did technical writing for human resources departments. Eight years after they met, Dan and Nancy held a large marriage ceremony in 1999 and began referring to each other as husband and wife, but they didn't file any of the legal paperwork until June of 2016, according to the Washington County clerk. Which is crazy. So they were together for 17 years, but not legally married. Okay. Did you read anything as to why they finally filed the paperwork? No, I didn't see anything about why they had or had not. Yeah. Who knows? I have no idea. I didn't read it anywhere. It wasn't explained. Should we speculate? We should totally speculate. (laughs) (laughs) With no reason or proof behind it. Exactly. During their marriage, Dan earned fifty to $60,000 a year teaching while Nancy began a catering company in Portland. The catering company did well, some years earning up to half a million dollars. I'd say that's doing well. Dang well, yeah. According to the Oregonian newspaper, the catering company's fortunes waned after the September 11th attacks on the World Trade Center. The newspaper ran a story that year about how the tragedy affected local restaurants, and Nancy told the paper she was forced to lay off 10 staff members, reducing the number of her employees from 25 to 15. According to Nancy Brophy's Amazon author's profile, her true love was storytelling, more specifically writing romance novels, which I believe she characterized them as, what, what did she call them? Uh, romantic suspense. Romantic suspense, exactly. You know, the kind with like the big buff military or police guys on the cover. Like the big hot rip guys. Exactly. Did they have busty women as well with lots of cleavage? You know, I looked it up. I think one of them did, but I think most of it was trying to appeal to the female reader and Mm. looking at the guys because they were real. (laughs) (laughs) Because these were true stories. Exactly. (laughs) I meant the men were real. (laughs) In 2003, Nancy joined her local chapter of Romance Writers of America and learned the craft of story writing. Since then, she published both romantic suspense novels and two novellas under her name as well as pseudonyms. Her profile says her stories are about pretty men and strong women, about families that don't always work, and about the joy of finding love and the difficulty of making it stay. Nancy also self-published a series that was entitled The Wrong Series, which included five novels, like The Wrong Husband, The Wrong Brother, The Wrong Whatever. Right, The Wrong Boyfriend. Right. All those things that Kathy has experience with. (laughs) And I don't don't think she had the wrong brother because it was romance novels. (laughs) Let's hope she didn't have the wrong brother. Well, it could have been somebody else's brother. Could have been somebody else's brother. We'll go with that. That's true. (laughs) None of the books have more than a dozen or so reviews, and they did not earn Nancy much money. After running her catering company for a little over a decade, Nancy began selling life insurance and Medicare policies, and Dan continued to teach at the Culinary Institute. He also had a couple side gigs, Kath, that I read about where he would be a chef for certain restaurants here and there or whatever. But ultimately, the Culinary Institute was his bread and butter, (laughs) his croissant and jam. Okay, that's better. It was a Culinary Institute. (laughs) Uh, And anyway, so the two of them started having conversations about what retirement would look like. And this was probably right around 2016. Now, Nancy Brophy was able to help police put together a timeline of Dan's mourning the day of his death. She told investigators that Dan left their home around 7.05 a.m., which was about a normal time for him. And he would have arrived at the Oregon Culinary Institute about 10 minutes later because they only lived five miles away in Beaverton. Nancy told investigators that she was in bed when Dan left for work that morning. She preferred to rise a little later. And I'm a fan of that as well. I get you, Nancy. (laughs) Nancy said Dan did not have any enemies and she could not think of any dispute or problem with anybody that would provide a motive for what happened to him. She said he was very well liked by staff and students at the Culinary Institute. And when detectives asked if Dan might bring a gun to work to protect himself, Nancy told detectives that she and Dan purchased a gun four months prior at a gun show in February of 2018 after hearing about the school shooting in Parkland, Florida. After speaking with Nancy at the crime scene, homicide detectives accompanied Nancy back to her home where they recovered a Glock 9mm handgun. Nancy told the detectives after they bought the gun that neither she nor Dan were interested in it and decided to put it away, having never even purchased ammunition or firing the gun. When Nancy gave detectives the gun, it was in a box without ammunition, along with empty magazines, and the slide was zip-tied through the barrel. 
as we said earlier, Dan had been shot once in the back and once in the chest. And the medical examiner determined that either of the bullets could have been the one that killed Dan because both of them pierced his heart. Dan also did not have any defensive wounds on his body. The shell casings were both 9mm, and it was determined that they were fired from the same gun and that they were likely fired from a Glock. Forensic technicians tested the Glock Nancy had given to the police, and investigators were able to confirm that the slide and barrel of the gun showed no evidence of ever having been fired. Three days after Dan Brophy's murder, Nancy called lead detective Darren Posey, and here's a portion of the call. Nancy, can I help you? Hi, Nancy. It's Detective Posey. Oh, hi. Hello. Oh, you guys later. Okay, I got. I am struggling to, and I'm. And I don't know why I'm struggling. Do we have another email? I you. Well, I think you got mine not correct somehow. Oh, okay. Um, it's it's my whole name, so it's D A R R E N dot. No, no dots, no dashes, no yeah. underscores. Yeah. So it's Darren. Uh-huh. And then a dot, then, ah. then Posey, P-O-S-E-Y, at Portland, Oregon. And now the Portland, Oregon is all one word. So that's question one. Now, okay. I don't want to do, but this may give you a laugh this afternoon. Uh, I don't want to be the stupid question of the day, but I think I need to be the stupid question of the day. Uh, so okay. my insurance company said, well, just have the detective write a letter that you're no longer a suspect. And I said, man, I just don't know that he's there. Uh, and I'm not sure that he looks at that way. But if you do, I get you to write the letter. My sister, when I told her this as a lawyer, laughed so hard she fell out of the chair. So. Why? <laughs> why would you need that? Because they don't want to pay if it turns out that I secretly went down to the school and shot my husband because I thought, Hey, going into old age without Dan after 25 years, it's really what I'm looking for, you know? <laughs> okay. Well, we we never would do something like that. I, I, did, I really didn't think so. Yeah, I mean, that's not something that we... I, I, we never, we never do something like that. That's never been done. I've never heard of that being done. I, I was shocked when he told me this. And the other thing he says, well, I said, so what happens if, in fact, based upon your... And this is... This is such a stupid little policy. I can't believe they're making me jump through hoops like this. This is only $40,000. And as my sister said, you know, usually when they do that, it's for millions. And I said, yeah, we weren't sure for millions. Uh, but uh, but the other thing is, I said, what happens if, in fact, this case never gets resolved? And they said, well, that has to go to uh, uh, up to the supervisors to be evaluated. And I'm thinking, great. Uh, so I... Uh, but so let me ask you my next question, which I know you're going to give me a vague answer, so I don't know why I'm asking. But have you got enough things that you really think you know, or you think you've got the potential to solve it at this point? When I saw you on Saturday, I didn't think you had that. We are looking at a lot of stuff. Yeah. And that, I think that's what I told you before, is that there's a lot of, of things to go through and review. Well, um, because given the nature of the of what took place and how it took place, um, you know, there's, there's just yeah. uh, a lot of... Um, people to talk to and a lot of, of um, you know, just is just a lot of information to process um, because, it, you know, when we have something like this take place, we cast a wide net for information, right? And, and, and so it takes time processing some of that stuff. So that's, that's kind of what's going on with that. And that's why there's, and, and I apologize, you know, I meant to get back to you sooner, but we're just, there's just a, a large amount of, of things still coming in, um, you know, that I haven't even had a chance to look at yet, um, just because there's just been, you know, it's just a, a, a lot of things, right? So we're working on that. Uh, both both uh, my partner and I are, are you know, you know, we've been working nonstop, just going through um, and, and all I'm of the different things. So, fine, behind you, real frankly, I want you to take as long as it takes because I want us to find this person. Yeah. But, uh, mm -hmm. but I'm not hounding you. But you know, 
I also got my family even, what do you know? What do you, what do you know? What do you know? And then somebody pops up and says, oh, this and that. And I'm thinking, well, we don't know this and that, but that doesn't matter. Right. Everybody has an opinion. Right. And, uh, and But when this woman asked for this today, I thought, I cannot even imagine in my wildest dreams she doing that. But I thought, it's worth a shot. I'll ask. You know? Okay. So the recording you just listened to was on YouTube published by KGW News in Portland, Oregon. And as you heard, Nancy wanted a letter from detectives stating that she was not a suspect in Dan's homicide so that she could provide it to her life insurance company. And Nancy mentioned needing it for a $40,000 policy. But Detective Posey knew already that this was not a complete picture. At the time this conversation took place, he had already been contacted by four different insurance companies in the days after Dan's death. These four different phone calls revealed life insurance policies totaling around $350,000. Now, as you heard, Detective Posey declined to provide a letter. Well, Kath, if we're being consistent with the theme of romance novels, I believe what Detective Posey actually said to Nancy was, nay, 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 fair maiden. I am 97.4% certain that you're right. <laughs> I'm 100% certain I'm right. You heard him on the phone. Doesn't he sound like the romantic type? Nay, nay, fair maiden. I like that. <laughs> Detective Posey knew something else at this point that Nancy Brophy did not. Although there was no video surveillance inside or outside of the Oregon Culinary Institute, homicide detectives had canvassed the surrounding area for security surveillance cameras. Several videos the detectives obtained showed what looked like a gray-colored Toyota Sienna minivan, which was exactly what Nancy drove. Detectives were surprised to see this vehicle directly in front of the school at 7.08 a.m. It was again seen leaving the area at 7.28 a.m. From pictures taken by one of the homicide detectives of Nancy's vehicle, Detective Posey was able to match a rusted scratch and dent that were in the same place on her minivan as on the minivan in the video. Also, the driver's appearance was consistent with the white-haired Nancy Brophy. On September 5th, 2018, three months after Daniel Brophy's murder, Detective Posey was granted a search warrant to search the Brophy home and vehicle and to seize electronic devices that had internet browsing capabilities, as well as any gun-related items, keys to storage facilities, and diaries. Detectives uncovered a Google search history belonging to Nancy that revealed she used the search term ghost guns six months prior to Dan's murder in December 2017. She also visited ghostguns.com. Who knew there was a website like that? Exactly. (laughs) Where she purchased a Glock ghost gun kit. Detectives determined that the ghost gun slide and barrel would not fit on the Glock that Nancy gave to detectives after her husband's murder. However, detectives also uncovered a Google search for Glock slide for sale. They determined that Nancy purchased a Glock slide and barrel on eBay five days after she bought the Glock 9mm at a gun show. Detectives were also able to determine that the eBay Glock slide and barrel would fit the gun she turned over to police. However, detectives have never recovered this slide and barrel that she purchased on eBay. Homicide detectives interviewed numerous associates of Nancy and Dan Brophy and learned that Nancy had expressed an interest in selling their home and traveling the world. However, witnesses indicated these conversations only occurred with Nancy and never Dan. Nancy also revealed to one of her friends that she wanted to sell her home and move out of the country, but Dan would not be easy to convince. So at this point, it's worth noting that the Brophys had about, I don't know, 312,000, I believe I read, in their home. So including the $350,000 from the first four life insurance policies that investigators knew about, Nancy Brophy stood to collect a lot of money upon Dan Brophy's death and the sale of their home. 
prosecutors engaged in a thorough review of the Brophy's bank accounts and determined that they experienced financial hardship going back several years after Dan lost a couple of his chef jobs. They often struggle to pay their mortgage, but despite an unsteady financial situation, Nancy ensured that she paid the life insurance premiums leading up to Dan's murder. In fact, she paid over $16,000 in insurance premiums in 2017, and during that time, she and her husband fell over $6,000 behind in mortgage payments that year. Nancy also spent over $1,500 in firearms and firearm components in fewer than two months of that year. Kath, why are so many dogs now suffering from health issues? Actress Katherine Heigl, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, said she's seeing more issues with joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health, their food. What she discovered is actually the way many dog foods are made can create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many of the premium brands. Fortunately, she found that just by adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw a huge transformation in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. And Kath, as you know, we have a schnauzer named Ollie. And even though my husband insists he is not, he is overly flatulent. (laughs) (laughs) After I started giving him this food, I swear there was a reduction in his smell. I love that. And I'll come over to your house now. (laughs) Exactly. Well, and you know, we have a Vishla we call Orange, and she's a senior dog. And over the last couple of weeks, she has actually had more energy to be running around the backyard with the younger dog, the Doberman we call Brown. Or crazy. A little bit. <laughs> so if you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, go to badlandsfood.com slash killer D and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D dot com slash killer D. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. On September 5th, 2018, three months after Dan Brophy was fatally shot inside the Oregon Culinary Institute where he taught, Nancy Brophy was arrested at her home for Dan's murder. In the arrest warrant declaration, Detective Darren Posey stated that Nancy was seeking to collect on life insurance policies worth a combined $1.4 million. So they found more policies than the initial four that he was aware of. Okay, that's correct. Bail was denied. Nancy's trial began three and a half years later on April 4th, 2022, with Multnomah County Judge Christopher Ramrus presiding. Prior to trial, Nancy's defense attorneys made a motion precluding a blog post Nancy wrote 11 years prior titled How to Murder Your Husband. Judge Ramrus granted the defense motion, citing that the post was old, it was written for a writing seminar, and any value it might have to the case was outweighed by the prejudice it may cause the jury. So, Kath, I read it, and this was clearly something that was written tongue-in-cheek. Oh, totally. Completely sarcastically. And this, I, I agree with the judge's decision, and it's so funny because it's like you read articles about this case, and journalists made such a big deal about this. They did. Oh, like she wrote this, like, how to murder your husband thing. It was not remotely related. At all. She started it by saying, as a romantic suspense writer, I spend a lot of time thinking about murder and consequently police procedure. After all, if the murderer is supposed to set me free, I certainly don't want to spend time in jail. And let me say clearly for the record, I don't like jumpsuits and orange is not my color. 
So she goes on to give a couple of motives, financial crimes of passion, falling in love with somebody else. And then she has all these options to consider, which really are all the usual suspects that were represented. So it was guns, knives, pieces of heavy equipment and poison with one outlier being Garrett's. Right. And then she basically sarcastically dismissed all of these options, essentially. Right, exactly. You know, in each one of them, even like the Garrett's, she was like, it takes a lot of upper body strength to be able to do it. Right, and right. And poison, you're going to have to take care of your husband when he's sick. Yeah, and you don't want to do a that. sick husband or the messiness of all the others. It, it was definitely tongue in cheek, like It you was. Said. And she concluded it by saying, I find it is easier to wish people dead than to actually kill them. And then her last sentence, Kathy, was something she was questioned about at trial. Yes. Which is, but the thing I know about murder is that every one of us has it in him or herself when pushed too far. You're right. The prosecutor actually tried to be dramatic in his questioning. And he was like, one more question, Ms. Brophy. Don't you believe that everyone has it in them to murder kind of thing? And she basically answered the question, yes. And it was a very long winded answer, but it was essentially like, when you're protecting somebody else kind of thing. Right. When you protect those you love. Yeah. During opening statement, Multnomah County Prosecutor Sean Overstreet painted Nancy Brophy as a woman who lied to police about her whereabouts on the day her husband was killed and who stood to gain a significant amount of money from his death. The Glock 9mm handgun Nancy gave police on the day of her husband's murder was, of course, a big point of interest at the trial. And two witnesses, one of whom was Detective Anthony Merrill, testified that the slide and barrel was not seated correctly on the gun frame. So basically, Kath, Nancy gave detectives this unused Glock that, as you said, had a a zip tie around it. And Detective Merrill testified that when it was given to him, the slide and barrel were not fully seated on the frame. It was not seated correctly. And he testified at trial that he thought it was odd that it wasn't fully seated or seated properly on the gun because it had never been used. He also said even though the gun had a zip tie on it, Detective Merrill and Detective Posey both said there was enough room to maneuver to make it possible to remove the slide and barrel with the zip tie on and still not damage the gun. The obvious implication here is that the slide and barrel that she purchased on eBay was used for the murder and then traded out for this unused slide and barrel. Right. So now there's no slide and barrel that is in their possession or Nancy's possession that shows markings that are consistent with those on the shell casings they found at the crime scene. Exactly. Detective Posey also testified for the jury that ghost guns do not contain a serial number. They're unregistered. They're untraceable. And Brophy's attorney acknowledged that Nancy visited these ghost gun websites and had purchased the two firearms. Because she was doing research for her romantic suspense novels with these Navy SEALs and Army Rangers and whatnot. Exactly. And she gave examples at trial of other things that she had purchased for research. One was like handcuffs. And another thing she testified about at trial is that somebody owed her money. So as collateral, they said, here's my night vision goggles. And so she used these goggles. She like messed around with them, figured out how to use them, that kind of thing, and was disappointed when they paid her back. So she had to give up these night vision goggles, but she apparently used it as material in one of her books, like what she had learned from these goggles. Okay, so which male middle-aged detective do you think it was who had to read her books? <laughs> like short straw? You know they were in the squad room going, no, you. You, exactly. you read about the one, the one about the wrong brother. <laughs> They're like, you, your newest, you got the, Start you got reading. the short straw. Start reading. Exactly. <laughs> detective Merrill testified that Nancy did go to the Culinary Institute on the morning of the murder, and detectives spoke with her in a recorded conversation. Upon being told that it was likely her husband who had been killed, Nancy apparently said, yeah, I got that when everyone gave me the sad sack look. Detective Merrill pointed out that it was 10 minutes into his conversation with Nancy on the morning of her husband's murder that Nancy finally asked what happened to her husband and 47 minutes into the conversation when she asked where he was. That I find odd. Right. Because if you're told your husband's dead, you're like, I want to see him. 
so as we said, Nancy had taken out a lot of life insurance policies, but they were paying for these policies and not paying for their mortgage. As a result, Dan Brophy took out $35,000 from his retirement account so that they could pay their mortgage. The prosecution called an insurance expert to the stand, a man named Stephen Santos, who testified that the Brophys were paying more than $800 a month on these policies, which was 20% of their gross income at the time. Portland Police Bureau financial investigator Bob Azor reiterated to jurors that the Brophys were dealing with significant financial issues at the time of Dan's murder. He testified he believed they were under financial distress, detailing the spending and borrowing from Dan's retirement account. Azor also answered detailed questions about the couple's bank account information, mortgage payments, and equity, and determined they were spending more than their normal household income. The 12th day of the trial, on April 21st, 2022, the prosecution rested its case. On cross-examination, the defense questioned detectives about their failure to look for additional suspects, implying that they were basically going straight to Nancy Brophy to the exclusion of any other rational alternatives, especially, Kath, because there was somebody who took the stand who testified about the aggressive homeless people in the area, and she said that they had been increasing in aggressiveness and panhandling and that someone she knew had been stabbed by an aggressive homeless person. And this is Portland, after all. Exactly. So the defense pointed out that investigators did not perform DNA analysis on the two shell casings found at the crime scene and only looked for fingerprints. Now, side note, the police justified this by basically saying, hey, the heat generated by the shell casing being propelled through the chamber would have destroyed any DNA. That's what the detective said. So anyway, the point is nothing connected Nancy to any evidence at the crime scene itself. Yet detectives looked no further than her. That was sort of the defense theme. The defense also called witnesses to testify that the Brophys were a loving couple who cared for each other. And Kath, there were a lot of witnesses who supported that position. Kath, there were only witnesses who supported that. And I mean that in the best way. Nobody they talked to, right. prosecution or defense, right. were able to find anybody, including Dan Brophy's son or Dan Brophy's parents. Right. Who said they had a bad relationship. Right. They all said that it was a very happy, loving relationship. They also had witnesses testify to Nancy's research on firearms and, you know, like her funky research in general that she did to like write these suspense novels. Defense attorneys then called Nancy Brophy to the stand to testify on her own behalf. And Kath, she was on the stand for 12 hours over three days. There are not enough pencils in the world to stick in my eyes. Yes. That's yes. what I would have rather done than listen to anybody. I don't care who they are. A lot of this trial, we went down the YouTube vortex on this trial because a Some lot of it's... call it a rabbit hole. Right, exactly. It's an interesting situation watching a trial and realizing how unsexy and slow they are. Yes. Like a lot of it, you do want to like put a fork in your eye. Anyway, so Nancy Brophy made the brave move or foolish move, depending on your perspective. <coughs> foolish. <laughs> and took the stand in her own defense. And so this was a long trial and these jurors sat through a lot and a lot of that testimony presented. It was like watching ice melt or paint dry. So she takes the stand. She's obviously the pivotal witness in her defense. And I have to say... There was a lot of non-responsive answers and there was a lot of excessive going on and on and on Explaining. and on. There was also a lot of pushback and a lot of crankiness on her part when the prosecutor would ask her a question and she would say, oh, I don't know. I don't know. I just don't know what that is. I, I don't know. Never mind. I, I, sure. Go ahead. Tell me I did that. That's fine. Yeah. So she had a little bit of toed. Yeah. Crankiness. When the, yeah. When the prosecutor was asking her something that made her uncomfortable and she would kind of fall back on this. Well, I don't remember that, but I didn't kill my husband. Like many, right. many times that was sort of her fallback line. I think it was a very serious risk that the defense ran in putting her on the stand. But that is entirely her decision. Right. Exactly. As it should be. It I was am, the wrong decision. Well, I'm 100 percent confident that her defense attorneys were like, you shouldn't do this. This is a bad idea because usually it is a bad idea. Yeah. While on the stand, Nancy spoke glowingly of her husband, Daniel, calling him smart, bright, funny, kind, humble. 
She said they had a strong relationship and that she missed him. At one point, she said, it's like you've lost an arm, like you're not as good as you were when you're with him. You were the best you could be when you were together with him. Now it's like, yeah, I function, but there's something missing. And one of the things she testified about was that their marriage was what she called a study in contrasts. He was an early riser, a tea drinker, and a closet hoarder who could hide his humor and affection beneath his gruff demeanor. She, on the other hand, liked to sleep in. She liked coffee. She was very neat and tidy. She didn't like clutter, etc., etc. She also talked about how they both loved food and culinary training and like traveling and restaurants and that kind of stuff. Much of her testimony focused on their financial situation, which, of course, is necessary because this is the prosecution's theory on motive. If she had $1.4 million to inherit, it should be. Right. And as we mentioned, Nancy sold insurance and she testified that she was a big believer in insurance and purchased her first life insurance policy when she was 35 years old. And I thought that was interesting because at 35, she was unmarried and she never had kids. She testified that she and her husband tried to maintain sort of like equal life insurance policies, like policies that were similarly valued, but she purchased a large policy on her husband about a year and a half prior to his death. Now, she said she did this because she needed to earn the commission, and I want to say it was $3,000 that she automatically got by purchasing the policy. She also said that she would have purchased a policy on herself because, of course, she was cross-examined. You know, why didn't you buy your husband a policy on you? And she said, I would have, but because of my age, I couldn't. And as you remember, he was four years younger than she was. Yes, exactly. She also testified that this policy, this larger policy that she purchased was part of their retirement plan because she and her husband were not good savers. So I'm assuming it was a whole life policy. She testified that she believed her husband would outlive the policy and that they would get a lump sum payout of $76,000 when they were in their late 70s. She also, Calf, which I found very interesting, testified with respect to this insurance policy that had her husband died within two years of the issuance of the policy, there would have been an investigation. And he did. So she was sort of implying, like, why would I murder him for this money if it was within the two year period where I know they would, you know, scrutinize it? She was actually four months shy of that two year mark at the time Dan was murdered. Nancy also testified about the financial struggles she and her husband experienced between 2014 and 2017 after, as we mentioned, her husband lost his side hustle. So anyway, she testified that they borrowed $35,000 from his retirement account to pay off debts, like you mentioned that previously. And of course, they had to like get up to date on their mortgage and all that kind of stuff. As they worked to catch up on mortgage payments and pay off debts, their plan was to sell their home, buy a smaller property, and so they could be totally debt-free. Now, Kath, on rebuttal, the prosecution wanted to call a jailhouse snitch named Andrea Jacobs. So there was a motion to preclude this jailhouse snitch from coming in and testifying. So with respect to this motion, Judge Ramrus allowed the defense to call witnesses to testify as to the credibility of this snitch. The person they called was a prosecutor who had prosecuted Andrea Jacobs for various crimes. So she was serving time, I want to say a four-year sentence, in a federal prison in Texas for fraud and identity theft. And the reason she was brought in, right, is because she had served time in Multnomah County Jail with Nancy Brophy. Correct. So the prosecutor they called to the stand, the one who prosecuted Andrea Jacobs for crimes, called her a prolific and successful liar. This lady, the prosecutor, was a, a woman and she, she was like, essentially, you can't trust anything that comes out of her mouth. Anyway, so one of the things that the newspapers were like, oh, you know, jailhouse snitch says that Nancy Brophy confessed to murder. No, no, she didn't. Here's the deal. The prosecution asked Andrea about their history and how they became friends. And Andrea basically said she didn't want to really be testifying. It was bad for her, you know. And we're using the term friends loosely. Yeah, exactly. So she gives like a short history of their friendship and talks about how a People magazine article came out on the death of Dan Brophy. 
And so Andrea says to Nancy, now this came out in testimony, you should use the media to find the murderer of your husband. Andrea says that Nancy's response was to say, I don't have to prove who murdered him. I just have to prove that I don't. It's a fair statement. But was this being presented as a reason why they think she did it? This was just being presented as some type of incriminating statement when, frankly, I don't think it's incriminating. I agree with that. But that's just me. Yep. So Andrea also said that she asked how Dan Brophy died. And what she testified to was Nancy started the sentence with the word I and then changed it to the word it eventually telling her that he was shot twice in the heart. That's lame. Again, that's lame. Like, this is supposed to be the blockbuster testimony that they flew her from Texas for. And if I'm sitting in the jury and I'm hearing this from a snitch, I'm now wondering what's behind the entire prosecution case. Right. And how many statements, how many answers could begin with the word I? You know, the implication that the prosecution led the jury to believe was like the sentence would have been I killed him. I shot him. Yeah. Anyway, so she tells Andrea supposedly that her husband died from two gunshot wounds to the heart. So Andrea supposedly responds by saying, wow, that must have been a close shot. Nancy supposedly responds by saying, yes, it was about this far away. And she opens her arms and sort of like spreads them out using like an arm's length distance to show Andrea how close the shooter was to her husband. I thought the testimony of the jailhouse snitch was a whole lot of nothing. A large part of the prosecution's case was Nancy's inability to explain why she did not tell detectives she was in the area of the Oregon Culinary Institute on the morning of the murder. After seeing the video, Nancy conceded that she must have been there, but she did not remember any of it. So the defense called two psychologists who explained what happens to someone's brain and memory when traumatic things happen. Both of these psychologists said that Nancy was so shocked by the news of her husband's death that she suffered retrograde amnesia and forgot all of the details of her mourning. Nancy testified that she still does not remember the trip to the Oregon Culinary Institute the morning her husband was killed, but that it would not be unusual for her to be in the neighborhood because she often liked to cruise the area for inspiration for her novels. It was a place she said she felt very comfortable writing. One of the things she said, Kath, was that I want to say there was like a local park or green space and she felt very peaceful there and she would sit on the grass and kind of brainstorm ideas and write. Now, as Kathy said, when Nancy Brophy was on the stand, she talked a lot about how much she loved her husband, how in tune they were with each other, despite all of their differences, and how so many people talked about how in love they were as a couple. So to add to all of this, Nancy's attorney actually read text messages of Nancy and Dan keeping in contact with each other, cheering each other on, checking in with each other, just to kind of show it wasn't just these people talking, but it was actually something they lived every day. The defense closed by addressing the jury and saying that after all the evidence was laid out, they were certain they would understand that Nancy Brophy did not kill her husband. On May 25th, 2022, after a seven-week trial, a jury found 71-year-old Nancy Brophy guilty of second-degree murder. Almost three weeks later, she was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole after 25 years. That would make her 96 years old before she's eligible to be released from prison. Dan Brophy's son, Nathaniel, was one of several family members who made statements before the sentencing. He said, the pain you have delivered to us is immeasurable. Your theft of a parent and grandfather for such selfish reasons is unforgivable. You were, to borrow from your catalog, the wrong wife. The prosecuting attorney read a written statement submitted by Karen Brophy, Dan's mother. She said, we will never understand how you can decide that it was an advantage for you to take the life of our son that he did not deserve to live. You will never know our beautiful great-grandchildren, Dan's grandchildren. These children deserve to know and love him as we all have. Nancy Brophy's defense attorney, Lisa Maxfield, has vowed to appeal the verdict. 
Thank you all for listening. Thanks so much. We appreciate it. And we have two new reviews on Apple Podcasts. So we wanted to give a shout out to the two of our listeners who took the time to leave them. And if you haven't left one yet, please do so because it really, truly does help other listeners find us. Assuming it's a nice review. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it has to be five star. That's the rule. Exactly. (laughs) And this is from Pictures, Inc. I love you ladies podcast. I'm a bit older than y'all, but still get everything. My life has been super difficult the last eight years. Kathy and Kathy, you make me laugh and smile. Love true crimes with the two Kathys. Keep up the good work. Picture sync. Thanks so much. We will. (laughs) And hope everything gets better in 2023. 2023 is your year, girlfriend. Absolutely. (laughs) The other five-star review we received, which is from SayK77, says, There are no two voices I would rather listen to. Well, maybe Sean Connery and Morgan Freeman, (laughs) but they don't have a podcast. (laughs) I love that. I do too. But I could listen to Kath and Kath all day. I laugh, I yell in my car, and have learned so much about converting old money to $2022. (laughs) She's my favorite. Exactly. (laughs) Love these ladies. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. Anybody who can take the time to give us a review, we would really appreciate it. And we love our listeners. We love you guys. I know. We're really lucky to have you. We appreciate it. We have a lot of good friends. And we've never met you, but we know you guys are friends. (laughs) And you must have a good sense of humor (laughs) if you tolerate us. (laughs) If you don't follow us on Instagram or Facebook, please do. Uh, And oh, yeah. What did we start, Kath? I don't know. TikTok. Oh, God. We started TikTok. (laughs) That's right. Yes. So I'm the reluctant TikToker. (laughs) Hey, she's doing a great job of it. If you're on TikTok, we are Killer Destinations Pod. They would not let us have every single letter we wanted. (laughs) But please follow us. Please like it. We only have our first two videos up about our last episode, which was the University of Idaho murders. But we've already filmed a couple more and we will be using it more and more. So we'd love to hear from you and we'd love to have you follow us. Thanks so much. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.